We will be looking at the first three verses of Mark's Gospel. Hopefully all three of them. Let's see if we can get that far today. There's a white page between your Old Testament and the opening of the Gospel of Matthew in your Bible. And what that blank page represents has captured the attention of scholars and students of Scripture for centuries. The page stands between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is old because it largely embodies the Old Covenant that God made between His ancient people Israel and Himself. The New Covenant, the New Testament, is new because it goes far beyond the Old Covenant. The relationship between the two, the Old and the New Testaments, may not seem to be a very important question at first, but it actually has everything to do with your salvation. We're not sure which of the four Gospels was written first, but many scholars today believe that Mark was the first Gospel that was written, the first account of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, prepared by his followers to record the events of his life, proclaim their significance to us. And that means that Mark perhaps ought to be the gospel that follows that white page. The Old Testament concludes, we have a blank, and then the gospel of Mark. Immediately following the conclusion of the Old Testament. The Old Testament in Malachi ended with a curse. The Old Covenant demanded of people more than they could give. The Old Covenant was a period of slavery. And at the end, Israel came to an end. The nation was dissolved. She was scattered amongst the peoples of the earth. And it was because of her inability to keep the covenant that God had placed upon them at Sinai. It was a covenant of death. Mankind was dying. The night was dark. The burden was heavy. God had sent prophets to the people to tell them what was going to happen, that their nation would be dissolved. They brought news of conquering armies and pestilence and famine and disease under God's frown and wrath. It was all bad news. It was the curse that God had cast upon humanity because of Adam's sin in the garden that had now extended itself to every corner of the globe And God's own people of Israel were not untouched by that curse. They too labored under the curse of sin and death. And when we open the New Testament's first page, perhaps the first page of the Gospel of Mark, when we open the New Testament's first page, the question that must be in all of our minds is this. Will things always be that way? Is there any hope? that anything will change. The prophets of Israel had given us reason in the Old Testament to hope that there would be change. They had foretold a new covenant. God had promised to bring life and blessing. He had promised righteousness and peace, and that was good news to Israel. In the midst of their darkness, Israel could take hold of these promises and derive hope that one day in the future, all things would change for the better. But that hadn't happened yet. The other question that ought to be in our minds as we open up Mark's gospel is this. Will God keep that promise? 
will the new covenant actually come? And those are the two questions that Mark had uppermost in his mind when he penned his first three verses. Will anything change? Will God keep his promise? So let's read the first three verses. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. The way our English translations read leaves us a bit unsure as to exactly what Mark is saying here. But if we smoothed it out just a bit, it might sound like this. The good news concerning Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, has begun. It began just as it was written in the prophet Isaiah. The good news has begun. It has dawned. The good news began just as it was written in the prophet Isaiah. The good news is that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that will be the three points of our message this morning. The good news has dawned. The good news has dawned just as Isaiah has prophesied. And the good news is that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the Son of God. And in this passage, we will see that God's work to send his own son as Messiah fulfills the promises he made in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. And that is indeed good news. And so first of all, notice with me the way that Mark's gospel opens, the beginning of the gospel, the gospel began. Mark begins his gospel at the beginning. It's the first word that he writes, the beginning. The Old Testament began at the beginning. It was in the beginning when God went to work to create the world that we see by the breath of his mouth under the hovering oversight of his spirit. In that opening chapter of Genesis, God created a world that was all very good. That was the way it was in the beginning. But human sin entered into this world and created a mess. The message of the Old Testament is that sin destroys peace and well-being. It destroys society. It destroys nations. It destroys man's relationship to God. Since the beginning when man sinned, that has been the state of our world. And it has continued that way for centuries. Century after century after century after century. Ten centuries, a millennium passes. A thousand years since Adam of chaos and sin and death. And then begins another century that concludes with the beginning of another century and another hundred years. Ten more centuries elapse. Another millennium has passed. Two thousand years of the reign of sin and death and darkness. Another century and another and another and another. Ten more. Three millennia have passed. Three thousand years of the reign of chaos and sin and death. Another thousand years has been completed. A thousand years of God's wrath and curse 
It was another thousand years of darkness. And those 3,000 years were followed by another century, and another, and another. Another hundred years goes by, and another, another hundred years. One more, then another. One more century passes. One more century. It has been another millennia. 4,000 years of God's wrath and curse upon mankind. 4,000 years of sin and suffering and aging and warfare and death. And then a man appears in the Judean wilderness. He's clothed in camel's hair and he eats wild locusts and honey. He's an austere man. He preaches, calling people to repent and to be baptized because the Lord is coming. It's a moment of incredible tension. It's the Lord who cast upon us the curse for our sin. It's the Lord who drove Israel out of her land for her sin. And now He is coming. If He is coming, surely it is the beginning of a new era of terror, a reign of fire. Surely He will come to purge His threshing floor. Here then is a transition point in the ages of history. Mankind has lay under God's wrath and curse, but He has never come to His people. And now, John proclaims that the Lord is coming. What will His coming bring? What will this new dawn, this new beginning bring? Mark tells us just what it is that is beginning. Chapter 1, verse 1. It is not the beginning like the setting of the sun where the world will descend into darkness. Rather, it is like the dawning of light after a long night. After 4,000 years of pain and ungodliness and warfare, with John's preaching, the good news has begun. A new era has dawned. It brings the old era to a close. Things will never be the same. The sun is rising. The day is dawning. It is a new era of good news. When was this beginning? The answer is that it all began when John, verse 4, appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance. Like Jonah of old who appeared in Nineveh proclaiming the coming of the Lord to overthrow that city. John appears also proclaiming the coming of the Lord. And yet, he preaches a baptism of repentance for the dismissal of sins. The forgiveness of sins. That is good news. And that is what begins at the beginning of the good news. Mark begins his gospel at the beginning, but it's not just that Mark is saying to us in verse 1, this is the beginning of my gospel of Mark. He's saying this is the beginning of a new era in world history. It's a new dawn. The beginning worthy of starting a completely new section of your Bible to tell. It's the dawn of the good news, and that is good. And that is what is new. Mark is carefully balancing two things for us here in these first three verses. First, he has shown us that John's appearance signals the beginning of a new era. It was the dawn of the good news. But that dawn, verse 2, occurred just as it was written in Isaiah the prophet. The dawn 
occurred just as it had been written. In other words, this dawn was not unexpected. It occurred just as Isaiah had foretold. And so our second point, that the good news dawned as Isaiah prophesied that it would. Look with me at verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, or to smooth that out, the good news began just as Isaiah had prophesied. When was this good news predicted? Mark tells us that this good news was predicted by Isaiah the prophet who had ministered about 700 years before John had appeared. Mankind had reason to expect the dawn of this good news for 700 years. The good news may have just dawned with the appearance of John, but actually it's very old. It goes back hundreds of years. It had all occurred just now as it had been written. And Mark's point is not so much for how long the dawn of the good news had been known, as much as the fact that it had dawned just as it had been written. The words just as at the beginning of verse 2, or as, they are an invitation to us. They're an invitation for us to make a comparison. A comparison, they invite us to compare John's appearance with what had been written. To compare the two. Mark wants us to see that the Old Testament predictions and John's appearance align perfectly. John's appearance is just as it had been written. So what had been written? What had Isaiah led us to expect? Well, here you can see in verses 2 and 3, that we have a quotation. That's why it stands in your Bible the way that it does. It looks different than the rest of the text around it. It's a quotation of Isaiah's prophecy, but we need to talk here about something that Mark has done that modern-day readers of Scripture can stumble over. Mark tells us that it was Isaiah, the prophet, who wrote what we have in verses 2 and 3. But actually, Isaiah only wrote what we have in verse 3. Isaiah did not write what we have in verse 2. Verse 2 is not a quotation from Isaiah's prophecy. It's a quotation from Malachi's prophecy. But Mark says they both came from Isaiah. Was Mark confused? Did the Holy Spirit get that wrong? There's many ways that we could think about what Mark is doing, but I want you to notice several things about these two prophecies first, and then we'll come to an answer as to what Mark is doing when he says that both of these were written in Isaiah the prophet. The first thing I want you to notice is that both of these prophecies, verse 2 and verse 3, share several elements. Okay? Both speak about a messenger. Verse 2, behold, I send my messenger. Verse 3, the voice of one crying, a message. Both speak about a messenger, and both speak about this messenger preparing the way. Verse 2, Who will prepare your way? Verse 3, prepare the way of the Lord. They both refer to the coming of a messenger who prepares the way for, as we're going to see, the Lord. Mark sees the one who comes in both passages, both verse 2 and verse 3. He sees the one who is coming as the Lord himself. And so both passages 
speak about a coming of the Lord and a messenger who will precede him and prepare his way. Mark thinks that the prophecy in Malachi, verse 2, and the prophecy in Isaiah, verse 3, are speaking about the same event. The coming of the Lord and a messenger who will precede him to prepare his way. They share several elements. The second thing I want you to notice is that there are differences between these two prophecies. Verse 2, Malachi's prophecy includes several elements that Isaiah's prophecy in verse 3 does not. Malachi tells us in verse 2 that it will be God who will send the messenger. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Malachi also tells us that the messenger will prepare the way for you. That's someone other than the I who sends the messenger. I send my messenger who will prepare the way for you. Someone other than the Lord is the messenger. And someone other than the Lord is the one who comes following the messenger. Isaiah verse 3 tells us several things that Malachi does not. Isaiah says that the messenger will, the voice, will proclaim his message in the wilderness. Malachi doesn't tell us where the voice, the messenger, will appear. Isaiah tells us that he will appear in the wilderness and proclaim his message. And while Malachi had said that the Lord will send the messenger to prepare your way, Isaiah says the messenger will prepare the Lord's way. Prepare the way of the Lord. And the third thing I want you to notice is that the coming that Malachi tells us about and the coming that Isaiah tells us about, for which the messenger prepares the way, both of those comings that Mark seems to think are the same thing, those comings are actually different. Let's look back at Malachi chapter 3. You don't have to turn back far. Malachi is the book immediately preceding Matthew. So just two books. And turn to Malachi chapter 3. This is the passage that Mark is quoting for us. In Mark chapter 1, he's quoting verse 1, but we will read verses 1 and 2. Malachi 3 verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Mark says he will prepare your way. Malachi says he will prepare my way, says the Lord. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight behold he is coming says the lord of hosts but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver Let's notice just a couple of things here. First of all, Malachi says that the Lord will send his messenger who will prepare the way before me. Mark says he will prepare the way for you. Malachi says he will prepare the way for me. Does Mark think that the you is the same person as the me? The one who comes following the messenger is the Lord himself? Apparently, Mark thinks of the one who follows John, the one who is coming as the Lord himself. 
Secondly, notice the beginning and the ending points of the way of the Lord. There's a way, a path, a messenger will prepare the way. Where does the way start? Where does the path end? Look at Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. He will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. There's the end point of the path. The way of the Lord ends in his temple. His temple is the destination. And third, notice what he will do in his temple. Verse 2, he comes like a refiner's fire. And like the soap of a washer man. Bleach that purifies, that turns colored things white. He's coming to his temple with fire. He will consume the chaff. He will cleanse the temple. His coming will bring terror and fire. That's what Mark quotes in verse 2 of Mark 1. Let's look at what he quotes in verse 3. Isaiah chapter 40 is what he quotes. You have to go back a number of books. Isaiah is the first of the major prophets. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. We're turning to Isaiah chapter 40 and we'll read the first five verses. Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 5. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand the double or the exact recompense for all of her sins. The penalty has been exact. And now... She no longer owes what she did for her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Verse 3 is what Mark quotes in his verse 3 of chapter 1. And I want you to notice several things here. First, unlike Malachi's prophecy, which was a warning and a terrifying thought that the Lord would come to his temple with fire, this passage, verse 1, is spoken to give comfort to God's people. When the Lord comes, Israel's iniquities will be pardoned. Her conflicts will come to an end and she will dwell in peace. God's coming would bring peace. Second, notice where the way of the Lord begins. Malachi tells us it ends in his temple, but he doesn't tell us where it begins. Where does the way of the Lord begin in Isaiah 40? A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. It begins in the wilderness. Wilderness, path, temple. 
Third, I want you to notice who this message of comfort is addressed to. Verse 1, comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord God. Let's see if we can put all this together, okay? Let's go back to Mark chapter 1 and see why it was that Mark quoted both of these passages of Scripture. Probably the best way for us to understand what Mark is doing here is to understand that he wants us to look primarily at Isaiah's prophecy. Because Isaiah's prophecy is the prophecy of the good news. This is the beginning of the good news. Look at Isaiah's prophecy, a prophecy of comfort because the Lord is coming. And in fact, as we go through Mark's gospel, we find that Mark is primarily interested in showing us that Jesus' coming has fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy of restoration and peace. In other words, as we go through Mark's gospel, we're going to be turning back to Isaiah's prophecy time and time and time again. What's happening in Mark, what Jesus is doing, is what Isaiah had foretold, is Mark's point. And Isaiah is Mark's primary text from which he's going to work. But Mark can't leave out that John the Baptist prepares the way of the Lord, his coming, in the way not just that Isaiah foretold, but the way that Malachi foretold also. Both Malachi and Isaiah are speaking about the same coming. Jesus is coming. John is coming to prepare the way for the Lord who will follow. Yes, his coming is good news according to Isaiah, but it is only good news for my people, says the Lord God. Comfort my people, says the Lord God. The comfort is only for God's people because the Lord will also come like a refiner's fire. He will consume the chaff. And the thing that would have been nearly impossible for the Jews of Mark's day to believe was that this fiery work would consume the chaff and that that fiery work would occur in the temple of the Lord. The Lord would come to his temple and who can stand when he appears? And remarkably then, in these two Old Testament passages, one, a coming of the Lord with comfort, beginning in the wilderness, the other, a coming of the Lord as a refining fire that will terminate in his temple where he will bring his fire. In these two passages, Mark has actually given us the outline for his whole gospel. Mark's gospel begins where Isaiah said things would begin, in the wilderness, with a voice crying. John is preparing the way for the Lord. And as we go through Mark's gospel, we'll find out that Jesus actually is on a very narrow path all the way through the gospel. Time and again, it will say he is on the way. He is on the path. He is on the way. He is on the way. People follow him on the way. And where does that path end? In Mark's gospel, the way ends when Jesus enters into the temple. In chapter 11, in chapter 11 and 12, he confronts the temple, even driving out the money changers. In chapter 13, he announces that the temple is over. 
When will it be destroyed? Malachi had said it would be destroyed by fire when, the sun, when, the, when God himself appears in the temple. Mark tells us in chapter 13, the temple will be destroyed when the Son of Man appears. Jesus is crucified. The temple curtain is torn. And the temple is abolished. Can you imagine a priest, a high priest? If that veil is torn, you've got no job. The temple is useless. In the death of Christ, the veil is torn. The Son of Man has appeared then. He has brought the temple to an end. The Lord has come to his temple. What began in the wilderness concludes in the temple. The way leads between the two. The Lord himself is coming to take this path from the wilderness to his temple. For God's people, this path will be a path of good news. For Israel, it will be a path of bad news because it will mean the end of the temple. This then is the plot of Mark's gospel. The good news dawns just as it was written in Isaiah, the prophet. And this actually helps us understand why Mark does not begin with the birth of Christ, like Matthew and Luke do. Because Mark's purpose is not to portray Jesus as the son of David who was born in David's city of Bethlehem. His purpose is to portray Jesus as the Lord who comes from the wilderness to abolish the temple and to bring peace and comfort to his people. And it seems then that Mark must have been written to Christians who witnessed or heard about the Roman conquest of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 66. 36 years after Jesus of Nazareth was crucified, the Roman armies came in and destroyed that temple in Jerusalem. That destruction seemed to signal that all that God had begun in the Old Testament had suddenly come to an end. God's temple, smashed by the Romans. You've got to remember it was into that temple that Peter and John went daily to pray. They thought of themselves as the continuation of all that God had begun in that temple. They thought of themselves as underneath its shadow and its roof. And when Rome destroyed that temple, it must have brought into the minds of Christians the question, what then has happened if God's temple has been destroyed? Perhaps Rome, not the God of Israel, is the ultimate power. And yet, here in this Gospel of Mark, we find Mark assuring us that it was all occurring just as God had promised. The Lord had come to his temple, and he came 36 years before Rome ever got there, and when he did, he destroyed the temple. The Old Testament promises that God has made to his people do not live in that temple. They live now in a new temple, the temple of the body of Jesus Christ. The promises will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The gospel has dawned with the coming of John, who foreruns and foretells the coming of Jesus Christ. God has sent Jesus to bring comfort. God is keeping his promises not in Jerusalem, not in that temple. He is keeping his promises in Jesus of Nazareth. That is where God is fulfilling. That is where things are happening, just as it was written in the prophet Isaiah. Promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 
So follow him. He is the way to God, not the temple. But there's one other thing to notice here. The coming of Jesus, the Lord, in Mark's gospel, is a coming of comfort to some, but it is a coming of fire for others. Malachi says he will come with fire. Isaiah says he will come with comfort. And that's what we find in Mark's gospel. To some, the coming of Christ is the opening of the eyes of the blind. To others, it is the destruction of the very thing that they love, a temple. For some, it is understanding of the kingdom of God. For others, it is the closing of eyes, the shutting up of ears, lest they hear and be converted. And that's something we're going to have to sort through in Mark's gospel. Who will receive the comfort? And who will receive the fire? But who is it who's coming to his temple? Isaiah and Malachi both said that it was the Lord who would come. And Mark obviously thinks that that is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth is the Lord of the Old Testament who will come to his own temple. But how did a lowly peasant man from Galilee who one year made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and was executed by the Romans, how did anyone come to think that he was the Lord who had come to his temple? Why did Mark not conclude that this was just some renegade, some rebel? And that actually is the message of Mark's gospel. Jesus of Nazareth, his entrance into Jerusalem, into that temple was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Of Malachi's prophecy. Jesus of Nazareth is the Lord who comes to his temple and it is good news that he has come, that he has appeared in the wilderness. The good news is that the Lord has come. In other words, it's all bound up in who Jesus of Nazareth actually is. Who is he? Mark begins by telling us in verse 1 that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. The good news of Jesus Christ that began just as was written in Isaiah, the prophet. The good news is this, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. The good news concerns Jesus, who is the Messiah, the Son of God. There's two titles here, Messiah and Son of God. You'll see the word Messiah in our New Testament frequently as Christ. Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. Christ is not Jesus' last name. He would have been referred to as either Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus ben Joseph, Jesus son of Joseph. Instead, Christ is a title, something like president or premier or prime minister. A premier is currently Stephen Miles. Premier... Stephen Miles, title, name, Christ, Jesus, title, name, and Son of God, also a title. Two titles, and both of these titles would have been familiar to the Jews in the first century. To call Jesus the Messiah, the Christ, was to say that he was one whom God had anointed with his spirit to carry out some task in God's power for the benefit of God's people. 
to call him Son of God. The Old Testament title, Son of God, appears frequently. And God uses it of the kings of Judah. God says to David, I will take your son to be my son. He will rule in my place over my people. God was the ultimate king over Israel. And David's sons reigned over Judah in God's place. They were God's sons. And yet, Mark has something in mind here that I think we need to look look at carefully for the last few minutes. Mark tells us that he regards one man, Jesus of Nazareth, to be both Messiah and Son of God. Those titles you might have called Solomon, the Son of God, in the sense that he was God's representative ruler over his people. You might have called Isaiah a Messiah because he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim to Israel a year of God's favor. But never had those titles come together into the same person. There is one passage in the Old Testament where one individual is both Messiah and Son of God. And I think that Mark has this passage in mind throughout the entirety of his gospel. His gospel is written to show that this passage was fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. And that passage, the only passage in the Old Testament where Messiah and Son of God come together is Psalm 2. And so let's turn to Psalm 2 as we finish up this morning. We'll read the entire psalm of just eight verses. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah, his Christ, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled fire. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's summarize this psalm briefly and understand what the author is saying. The first three verses, we see the nations of the earth rebelling against God's rule over them. They're trying to throw off God's laws and his authority over them. They're trying to go their own way to rule over themselves. But it's not just God's rule that they're rebelling against. It is also the rule of his anointed, his Messiah, his Christ. Verses 4 through 6 are God's response to their rebellion. He laughs because he knows their rebellion will come to nothing. 
he set up his king over all the nations. And that king, verses 7 through 9, is going to rule them with a rod of iron and smash them like a clay pot. Their rebellion will come to nothing. They will be conquered. They will be subdued. In verses 7 through 9, the king whom God has set up on Zion's holy hill tells us the arrangement that he and God have. The king is God's son. You are my son, the Lord said to this king. God has made the nations. They all belong to him. They are his inheritance. But God has set up his king, his son, who will inherit and possess and conquer and subdue the nations. They shall belong to him. He will gain the whole world, this king. And verses 10 through 12 then tell us what the kings of the earth must do if this is true. They must show wisdom and be warned by this. They must serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, and kiss that son. Bow down before him, lest he be angry, and you perish when his wrath is kindled. Don't rebel against the son. Take refuge in him. He will come with a rod of iron to smash the rebellious nations. He will come with blessing and comfort for all who take refuge in him. The Gospel of Mark ends on a stunning note. We saw this last week. A Roman centurion proclaims the crucified Jesus of Nazareth to be the Son of God. The Romans knew what it meant to call someone the son of God. They applied that title to Caesar. Caesar was the son of the gods. Think of that Roman centurion. The beginning of his day of work. His day's work is to execute this lowly rabbi from Galilee. This people, the Jews. They're rebelling against Rome's great rule. He must have reveled in his power as a Roman centurion representing Caesar. Rome had smashed the nations. She had conquered the world under the power of men like this Roman centurion. Caesar was the son of the gods. He was the ruler who possessed the kings of the earth. And yet by sundown, the centurion's opinion had changed. Surely, this man was the son of God. This is the one who will strike down the nations. This is the one who will rule them with a rod of iron. How did the centurion reach that conclusion? How did Mark come to that conclusion? And what does it mean to kiss the son? What does it mean to take refuge in him? Mark's gospel was written from Rome under Peter's direction to Christians throughout the Roman Empire who were suffering persecution under Roman Caesar Nero. 
They witnessed the destruction of the temple. Rome, not God, was triumphing, it seemed. The message of Mark is that Jesus is the messianic king, God's own son, whom God has set on his holy hill. It was on the hill in Jerusalem that Christ was crucified. It was God who set him on that holy hill to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And Mark's theological point, the main point he's trying to make throughout this whole gospel, is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That the crucified Jesus is the Spirit-anointed Son of God from Psalm 2, who will rule over the nations. He will take Rome's place. And in Mark's gospel, the way you take refuge in this Son, the way you kiss the Son is by following him, by denying yourself, by taking up your cross and following him. And that's hard. That's really hard. Because in Mark's gospel, there's no fire and there's no rod of iron. The king whom God has supposedly set upon his holy hill of Zion with a rod of iron to smash the nations is the lowly Son of God who goes to be crucified. It's something that Christians must have struggled with. It's something that Peter himself struggled with because when Jesus began to teach him that the Messiah must go to Jerusalem and be crucified and killed, Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. This is not what is going to happen to the Messiah, the Son of God. He is to reign upon Zion's holy hill. And Christ says, your interests are on the things of man, not the things of God. And Mark's gospel of those disciples following Jesus on the way to his temple and to the cross, to the holy hill of Zion, that process of following is intended to show them that it is taking up their cross and following him, denying themselves. That is what it means to take refuge in the sun. This one whom God has set upon Zion, his holy hill, who will rule the nations with the rod of iron. All of this has dawned just as it was written. God has promised. Promises are received by faith. Ongoing faith. Faith that follows. Faith in a crucified Messiah. Faith that follows even with a cross on its shoulder. Faith follows because God has promised. And God is faithful. The good news has dawned just as it was written. But actually, it's not that our faith has nothing to see. It's not merely that our faith takes hold of God's promises, but that we don't see anything happening. Because God promised. And God has acted. He has entered into our world in the person of his son to bring the promises to pass. It's all happened just as Isaiah foretold. He has not simply promised. He has stepped down from his throne and come to us. He has acted to bring salvation. He has sent his son. And in sending his son, God himself has walked the very path to the cross that he calls us to walk in this world. The Son did not come to be served, but to serve, to give His life as a ransom. God has entered into our world in the person of His Son, 
to serve us. He has entered into our sufferings with us. He has lived in this sin-cursed world. He has walked the path he calls us to walk. He has come close. He has come close to seek, to save, and to serve. And so, deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow him. And you too will gain the whole world. Lord God, you have done a marvelous thing in sending your son. You have acted in our world to bring us salvation, just as was written. And though it requires faith to take up our crosses and follow, surely the end is as Christ said. The end is where he himself has ended up, set high on the throne of David, the Father's right hand, prepared to come to subdue the kingdoms of this world, that they may become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Messiah, his anointed. He will reign forever and ever. And our lot now is to take up our cross and follow him. Lord, this is hard in a world like ours. It's hard when it seems that the world is the one that is triumphing. I pray, Lord, that from the Gospel of Mark we may follow Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, on his way to the cross and expect and see in that cross that he is who he said he was. Help us to be faithful, to bow down before him, to take refuge in him. We pray, Lord, that this book of Mark would truly be good news to us, that it would bring comfort to your people. And we ask this in Christ's name.